Welcome to the Legal Toolkit, where you'll get the latest trends and legal business initiatives that help you manage your law firm every day. Hear from the experts setting the standards for legal, insurance, compliance, and tools of the profession. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Here's the host of the Legal Toolkit, Jared Correa. Oh, well, thank you as always, Gary Tangway and uh, everybody out there. Welcome to the premiere episode of the Legal Toolkit 2012 model being right here on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jared Correa, and in addition to piloting this finely tuned internet radio show away from any icebergs, I'm also the law practice advisor with the Massachusetts Law Office Management Assistance Program. LOMAP provides free and confidential law practice management consulting services to Massachusetts attorneys. For more information on LOMAP's offerings, visit our website at masslomap.org or like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash masslomap. On the Legal Toolkit, we provide you each month with a new tool to add to your own legal toolkit so that your practices will become more and more like best practices. Today on the show on the Legal Toolkit is no different, and we're going to examine the topic of student loan management for lawyers. My guest today is Heather Jarvis. Heather is a former capital defense attorney who now dedicates her expertise to helping student loan borrowers make better decisions. Specializing in training for high-debt borrowers and the people who love them, Heather has provided guidance and information to thousands of students and recent graduates. She has contributed to student debt relief policy for the House Education Committee and other bodies in the Congress and spent more than six years advocating for public service loan forgiveness, which has become a reality. Uh, Public service loan forgiveness allows more recent graduates to dedicate their careers to the greater good. Heather, welcome to the Legal Toolkit. Thanks for having me, Jared. Thank you, Heather. Now, uh, since you may have a student loan bill that's uh, appearing in your mailbox any day now, let's not waste any more time with the normal pleasantries and preliminaries, and let's just dive right into it. So before we get into the repayment options, Heather, let's talk about what sorts of graduate loans people can hold. Uh, What kind of loans are there, and where can borrowers find out more about the types of loans that they carry? You know, it can sometimes be confusing to determine exactly what kind of student loans you have. There are several different general kinds of loans. There are federal student loans, and there are private um, or alternative commercial student loans. Um, so the first thing I recommend people do is visit a database that the federal government operates. It's called the National Student Loan Data System. Uh, you can find it online at nslds.ed.gov. And you go to that uh, database and you'll be able to see every federal student loan that you ever borrowed. And if you see your, a loan on NSLDS, it means that it is a federal student loan. Um, there's lots of kinds of federal loans. Most of us in graduate and professional school borrow both Stafford loans, um, either subsidized Stafford loans or unsubsidized Stafford loans. Those are examples of federal student loans. Um, or um, these days folks are borrowing uh, grad plus loans quite regularly in um, law school or graduate and professional schools as well. And those are also federal student loans. Um, then if you have a student loan that you don't see on NSLDS um, or if you're trying to get a, a, an accurate inventory of all your debt, uh, I also recommend that people um, access their credit report. Uh, you know, we're each entitled to download a copy of our credit report once annually for free, and you can do that by going to annualcreditreport.com. 
And there on your credit report, you're sure to see uh, all the private or commercial student loans that you may have also borrowed. Um, so really, it's a good idea to get um, an accurate inventory of both your federal and private student loans. And that's great that that website is just thanks God for government transparency, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, discussion of what types of loans uh, you can hold will inform some later discussion as well. Um, so most folks out of law school, <clears throat> I think they'll just go out and consolidate their loans without giving it much thought because, you know, that's what everybody does. But is that the best way to go? Well, and you know, not, it, it, is a good, it is a good idea for a lot of stu- uh, students to consolidate their loans uh, soon after they graduate. But it isn't as simple as that. There are a number of other considerations that it's a good idea to have in mind. Um, one thing that people are not always aware of but that's good to understand is that if you consolidate your student loans or when you consolidate them, you lose any remaining time in your grace period. So your grace period is a period of time before you have to start repaying your loans. It's usually six months for most loans. Uh, so if you graduate and you choose to consolidate before the end of your six-month grace period, you won't have any grace period left for the loans that you consolidate. So the um, question of timing is one that people should think about so that they can end up uh, where they want to be with their payment schedule. Um, Another thing to think about is that um, the federal consolidation loans that are now available come from federal direct lending, which is the arm of the United States Department of Education um, that uh, originates and administers uh, federal student loans. Um, There isn't any other lender that's providing federal consolidation loans now. So, um, Students mm-hmm. want to consider potentially um, consolidating with some mindfulness about the different kinds of loans they have and the different interest rates they've got. Um, so, you know, it used to be that student loans had variable interest rates. Uh, and if you're one of those borrowers who has student loans that you got some time ago, uh, like before the year 2006, your loans may well um, have that mm-hmm. variable rate. Um, and if that's the case, then the timing of your consolidation is going to have an influence on the interest rate you end up with on your consolidation loan. Um, but for most borrowers, and certainly for recent graduates who have just finished um, paying for law school, for example, most of those borrowers will have um, student loans that already have a fixed interest rate. And if you're consolidating student loans with fixed interest rates, then you don't really have much to gain um, in terms of interest rate by consolidating uh, because a consolidation loan has its own interest rate, which is based on um, the underlying loans. Uh, it ends up being what's called the weighted average of the underlying loans. Uh, and for that reason, you know, some borrowers are actually better off um, consolidating their grad plus loans uh, separate from their Stafford loans uh, in some cases. So those are some of the things for people to think about. That's interesting. Great information. Um, so as we talked about before, as uh, we addressed in your intro here, uh, you were a big advocate for public service loan forgiveness, which is now reality. And for those attorneys who want to engage in some pro bono style work, uh, working for legal services, for example, this can be a great option. So I know it's a wide-ranging program with lots of in and outs, but could you give us just a brief rundown of what the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program is? 
Yeah, um, let me let me tell you about um, the way public service loan forgiveness works. It can provide an enormous benefit to people who have careers in either government or nonprofit positions. So if you work full-time for a 501c3 nonprofit like a legal aid organization or a government, whether it's a state, local, or federal government position, um, you can earn substantial amounts of loan forgiveness. But the program is tricky and has lots of, requ- of requirements. Uh, borrowers earn loan forgiveness by making payments on their student loans. Um, and what, what they have to accomplish is they have to make 120 of the right kind of payments on the right kind of loans while they are in the right kind of job. Mm-hmm. So um, it is It is the case that if you get all the details right and you do 10 years um, of public service, uh, you can have your entire remaining federal student loan balance canceled and forgiven uh, by the federal government, which is really, really great for mm-hmm. the um, civil and criminal um, public interest lawyers who are really struggling with high student loan debt. If you follow the right uh, the right rules, of course. <laughs> exactly. So, so if somebody wanted to access public student loan forgiveness, uh, what advice do you have for it doing so? And are there any tax implications uh, for using this program? Well, there there are. Um, let me tell you about the um, the details for accessing it first, and mm-hmm. then I'll address yep. the taxation issue. Yep, so um, the first thing that uh, borrowers need to do is is make sure that they have the quote-unquote right kind of loan. So there's only one sort of loan that is eligible for public service loan forgiveness, and that is a federal direct student loan, which also includes federal direct consolidation loans. So uh, people who are in school right now are already borrowing these sorts of federal loans. Um, but folks who went to school before uh, July of 2010, so anyone who was in law school before July of 2010 might have gotten their federal loans from uh, a different lender than the federal government. Um, in years past, the federal government participated in a program where they had banks and private lenders like Sally May, Access Group, and others who would originate the federal student loans um, for the government. And those loans are still Stafford loans or Grad Plus loans or consolidation loans, and they're still federal loans, but they're not federal direct loans unless Mm. they are held um, by the federal government. And so Mm -hmm. some people will need to take the additional step of consolidating or reconsolidating their loans into federal direct. Um, So when you are doing your research on the National Student Loan Data System and looking at all of your federal student loans, you'll need to take the time to determine if your loans are with federal direct as your lender or if you have a what's called a FEL, F-F-E-L, lender. That stands for Federal Family Education Loan. And you can do that by looking to see whether the lender is listed as the United States Department of Education, the federal government, federal direct, direct lending. If that's the case, you've got the right kind of loan. If you have a lender like Sally May, you may not have um, the right kind of federal loan yet, and you may need to consolidate uh, into federal direct. 
Mm-hmm. Um, then borrowers also need to make the right kind of payment. So um, it's important that they select the, the repayment option that will qualify them for public service loan forgiveness. Uh, so like I said, you've got to make payments towards forgiveness. That's how you qualify. Mm-hmm. And the um, not all repayment plans are going to allow borrowers to make payments that count towards public service loan forgiveness. Um, nearly everybody who ends up benefiting will choose the income-based repayment plan. Um, mm-hmm. That's a relatively new repayment plan. I think we'll talk about it some more as we go forward today. Um, yep. And income-based repayment is really a good uh, choice for people looking to earn public service loan forgiveness. Mm. Um, and uh, lastly, the sort of other part of earning public service loan forgiveness is um, making sure that you have a qualifying public service job that you're doing mm-hmm. while you're making these payments on these loans. Mm-hmm. And those the, those jobs are very broadly defined. It includes um, full-time paid work for all sorts of government um, entities and for 501c3 nonprofits. You don't have to be representing clients directly. You don't have to be a lawyer. This program is for um, everyone in public service who has high debt relative to their income. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are lots and lots of qualifying jobs. Unfortunately, what doesn't qualify for public service loan forgiveness are uh, positions at any kind of for-profit organization or institution. For example, if you're a sole practitioner, you are not, you do not have 501c3 status and you're not a government. Um, so that won't qualify you for public service loan forgiveness. Uh, mm-hmm. and neither will working for a private law firm or yeah. any other for-profit entity. Mm. And you asked also, Jared, about the tax implications. Yes. So um, something to keep in mind about that is that luckily um, the the loan forgiveness that a borrower might earn is is not going to be taxed as income to them, which is really super and, and means that the benefits are even greater for these public servants who earn this forgiveness. So oh, yeah. if you if you earn a substantial amount of forgiveness, you don't have to worry that the um, the IRS is going to send you a big tax bill that year. That's excellent. Uh, great stuff here, Heather. And uh, so we're going to take a short break now. Uh, when we come back, we'll have more with Heather Jarvis, who's going to try and save you even more money. Want to stay in touch with the Legal Talk Network and get our shows automatically? RSS provides home delivery. You don't have to remember where to click. The good stuff comes right to you automatically and free. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and hit the RSS button at the top of the page. It says our podcast feeds. Now you'll be all set. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781 551 9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com we're glad you're listening to legal talk network check us out on facebook twitter and linkedin too all right welcome back here to the second half of what's turning out to be another fine edition of the legal toolkit on the legal talk network Today, I'm joined by Heather Jarvis, student loan counselor to the stars. 
All right, so we've talked about public loan forgiveness, Heather, and you alluded to it previously, which was a nice segue, by the way. Let's talk a little bit now about income-based repayment. How does that work? What does it mean? Well, income-based repayment is um, really useful for a lot of people, and it's a relatively new option for folks. And what it what it provides is an opportunity to get a reduced monthly payment based on your income. Um, now, not every single student loan borrower may choose income-based repayment. There is a bit of a threshold requirement that you have to demonstrate. Um, you have to have a rather uh, significant student debt-to-income ratio. Um, that's what's referred to as a partial financial hardship under this repayment plan. And uh, unfortunately, most of us law graduates don't have any difficulty meeting that threshold requirement because legal education is costly and student loan borrowing is high. So if you, the, the sort of simple rule of thumb I like to use is that if you owe more money on your federal student loans than what you earn in a year, uh, you probably qualify to choose income-based repayment. So, for example, if you have an adjusted gross income as you report on your federal tax return, um, you will be eligible to choose income-based repayment as long as you owe around that amount in federal student loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, with you know, with most law graduates owing $120,000 and end up um, following graduation. Um, you can earn a substantial amount of money and still have uh, a need to access the income-based repayment plan. Uh, so assuming that you do qualify to choose income-based repayment based on your income, then the, the real benefit of it is that you then have a monthly payment amount um, that is set by um, an elaborate calculation uh, that includes, <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, uh, certainly, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that includes um, a look at your at your income, uh, as I mentioned, defined as your adjusted gross income, um, and that also factors in the federal poverty rate uh, that is set according to your family size. So, what ends up setting your payment is not the total debt that you owe, but instead your uh, ability to pay, your income and your family size. Um, you know, for example, a borrower with a, a $40,000 adjusted gross income um, would be likely to pay, for example, if they are single and have no other family members, they'd be paying a little under $300 a month. Uh, in a typical case on the income-based repayment plan. And, you know, that's whether they owe uh, $50,000 in student loan debt or $100,000 or $200,000 in student loan debt. Um, and you can compare that, like if you were choosing a, a so-called standard repayment term for a substantial debt burden, um, you know, you could be looking at a lot closer to a 1000 or $1,200 a month payment. Um, which is, you know, far more difficult to manage. Um, but one of the things, you know, folks should really be thinking about if income-based repayment seems like a good option for them, um, there are several additional benefits of the program, and then there are also a few um, downsides to be aware of. Um, so to start with some of the cons, as I see them, for income-based repayment is that if you're a married person, you're going to have to make some tricky tax decisions. Um, 
I'm married, and my husband and I typically file our taxes jointly. We choose mm-hmm. to file our taxes jointly because we save some money in taxes by doing that. And a lot of for a lot of married folks, they're in the same situation. Um, but when I file my taxes jointly with my husband, then it is our joint income that the Department of Education will look to when setting my student loan payment under income-based repayment. And so, you know, assuming my husband has a job, which he thankfully does at the moment, <laughs> then that's, you know, that's going to affect my payment and potentially it's going to affect it a lot. Um, but it's uh, really important for, for married borrowers to understand that you have choices to make. Um, nobody has to file their taxes jointly. Um, you may choose to file them separately. And if you do choose to file them separately, you could have um, sometimes very substantial student loan benefits by doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you are likely to have some um, negative tax consequences by making that decision. Um, yep. But it isn't as simple as just saying to yourself, oh, gosh, well, I always file jointly and I say I know that's cheaper from a tax perspective. Well, okay, I mean, that's probably still true, but, um, you know, there's also a lot of money potentially at stake with the student loan decisions you're making. So mm-hmm. you really want to strike the right balance um, mm. and do the calculations or get some advice about what is going to be best for you. Um, I have done some consulting work with a company that is in Boston called GL Advisor, and they provide um, analysis of student loan situations, including tax preparation for people. Um, I think it's important for for, uh, borrowers to to know that uh, there's tons of very excellent um, tax providers who may or may not um, have a full understanding of the student loan uh, implications and they they yep. can be you know really quite significant. Um, so uh, so other potential downside to income based repayment is that you know anytime you you make a lower payment than you can afford on a debt obligation, you know you're you're extending the length of time it takes you to repay the debt and. You know, debt accrues interest, and that costs you money. So if you are able to pay more, um, you might be better off doing that because, um, you know, if if it takes you a long, long time to pay back your loans, you're going to pay a lot of interest over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you you could potentially increase the total cost of your borrowing over time. Um, Boy, uh, helps to take administrative law and tax classes in law school, huh, to move through all this stuff? (laughs) Well, exactly. And then you have to do like me and make it your life work to try to understand (laughs) it. You know, I mean, it's unfortunately, it's really really overly complicated. And it isn't, you know, it it, it just isn't that straightforward. There's lots of good stuff you can read and a lot of excellent, you know, self-help materials out there. Um, you know, I certainly recommend, for especially for public service loan forgiveness questions, my website, um, yep. and then also um, for uh, other, you know, student loan related issues. I'm, I'm in love with the studentloanborrowerassistance.org website, which is run by the National Consumer Law Center and is just absolutely a terrific wealth of information. Um, and, and we're running a little short on time here, so we have time for one more question, although I okay. could certainly talk to you for hours, Heather. Okay. Um, 
So we've talked about income-based repayment. We've talked about public service loan forgiveness. What about those people who don't fall under those categories? What about people with private loans? Uh, are there methods that those folks can use to sort of reduce or better manage their payments, or are they left to deal sort of directly with the loan holders? Yeah, unfortunately, private student loans aren't regulated in the same way as federal loans. They do mm-hmm. not have the same borrower protections and flexible repayment options. Uh, some people might want to consider whether there is a private consolidation loan available for their private student loans. That's probably only going to help people who have better credit now than they did when they borrowed the loans. Um, those aren't as widely available as they once were. Um, but in general, um, the the options you have for your private student loans are whatever the lender promised you when you borrowed the loan. So I advise people to read through their loan documents um, because there really isn't anything in addition to the the deal you made, you know, the contract you signed that is going to um, really help you much with private student loans. Um, unless you may have access to some loan repayment assistance programs through your school or your employer um, or potentially your state, uh, private student loans can be much, much uh, trickier to manage than federal student loans in general, uh, although private student lenders don't have the same collection powers that the federal government does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the, and, and I also recommend that if, you know, if there are any people who are still in school or are considering returning to school that listen to this information today, um, it's a good idea to borrow as little as, as possible of all, of all student loans or, or any debt in general. Um, mm-hmm. but especially those private student loans, borrowing should be minimized as much as possible if you're still in a position to do that. Good advice. So, Heather, this has been great. I, again, appreciate your coming on. Uh, tremendous stuff. And that's going to bring us to the conclusion of the end of another great episode, Legal Toolkit. Remember that you can check out all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. So, as I said, my special thanks today goes to Heather Jarvis for taking the time to appear on the show. Uh, Heather, you referenced your website before, and now I'll give you a chance to plug it. Uh, if, any of our list- if any of our listeners want to find out more about you, how would they go about doing so? Well, definitely jump online. My website is askheatherjarvis.com. You can also find me on Facebook at, at Heather Jarvis, comma, student loan expert. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to help people um, try to point you to some resources that can help you understand this mess. And Heather's got tons of resources. Her, her website really is a wealth of information. Now, all you folks listening out there, don't forget to join us next time. We'll have another excellent internet radio program here on the Legal Toolkit. Now, if your New Year's resolution was to listen to more episodes of this show, you're well on your way to a successful 2012. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to The Legal Toolkit. You can subscribe to the RSS feed and hear Jared every month right here on The Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.